Welcome to the Banker podcast series, Banking Under Pressure. I'm David Robinson, online editor at The Banker, and today I'm speaking with Imran Ghulam Husseinwala from the Open Banking Implementation Entity. Imran, welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you, David. Imran is responsible for developing open banking in the UK, essentially ensuring it meets common technical standards set out by the Competition and Markets Authority. Now, Imran, evangelists for open banking assert it is on the cusp of transforming banking forever. And the result will be more competition, better services and more choice for consumers. Now, the banker's audience is a typically knowledgeable bunch, but just for context, can you provide a brief uh, elevator pitch to those who who are less familiar with, with the subject? Of course I can. And we certainly are trying our best to transform financial services. What we're trying to do is enable consumers and small businesses to take control over their data and by doing so, rebalance the market away from the big banks and to some of these kinds of users. How are we doing that? Well, we're creating a simple and secure API standard, which allows customers to access their information and share it with authorized third parties. And I do stress doing it in a safe and secure way. That's really built into the architecture of what we're doing. And and by doing that, what they're able to do is to realize the value that exists within their transaction data and share it in a myriad of different use cases, uh, everything ranging from credit underwriting uh, to proving one's own identity. The other thing that we're also doing at the same time is enabling uh, users to use these authorized third parties to initiate payments from their bank account. So without having to be within their bank account, being able to send those payments. So there's a payment element and a data element. It sounds very exciting and ambitious. Realistically, how likely is this technology to change people's lives in the next two, three, maybe four years? We've been working on building this and it is a uh, no mean feat to have implemented so far uh, everything that, that, that we have done and that the banks have done. Um, and we're not quite finished yet with the implementation. That will finish over the period of this year and just a, a small amount into the next year. But already there are 2 million monthly active users using open banking enabled products. And that's despite the fact that all the functionality isn't really even in place yet. Um, and crucially, that's been doubling pretty much every six months. So I think when you look in a two to four year time horizon, I'm very confident and hopeful that many consumers and small businesses will just consider open banking to be a fact of life. And they will be using it in a myriad of different use cases, uh, ranging from payments, particularly in the e-commerce and the online world, and also in the data space where it's going to enable them to understand much more about the financial decisions they're making, to find better products and services, and thereby save money. Can you excite us by giving us a longer term outlook, perhaps over the next 10 to 15 years into how it can potentially revolutionize the way we bank? I think that open banking itself will be absolutely established within that 10 year period. I think uh, consumers uh, will become much more comfortable with being able to interact with their data. Uh, they'll be in a position where they can share it with third party apps 
by way of um, a completely kind of normal process and they'll become familiar with it uh, in order, as I say, to better engage with financial services. I think it will lead to much more competition from the banks between each other to try and win uh, current accounts uh, from in the market and crucially put a lot more innovation into the space. And some of that innovation uh, is already surprising us. Um, and you know there are use cases within open banking that were never thought of uh, by the architects of it um, that go well beyond easier credit for more people. So for example, vulnerable customers are able to use open banking to set up alerts if they're worried about fraud or to enable carers to help them with mental health issues and, and so on. Debt uh, charities are, are using open banking already or trialing open banking already uh, to see if it can help them as they work with their clients to help them out of problems that come from finance. You know, we've even seen an app looking at using the open banking data to help people get a better understanding of what their carbon footprint is and help them make better decisions to try and minimize that. So I'm really excited about the innovation, but I think looking at it from a 10-year period, what's really exciting about open banking is that it is potentially a stepping stone to open finance. And open finance holds the promise of allowing millions of people in the country to see all their financial relationships in one place. And I think that that will demystify a lot of financial services. It will allow them to engage better. And all the research shows that when you've got consumers engaging better with financial services, they make better financial decisions for themselves. And actually they choose better products as well. Um, and often getting better deals for those products. So at the moment, there's a lot of debate around open finance, the will we, won't we, and if we do, what is, what is it going to look like here in the UK? The FCA is at the heart of those, uh, that consultation. And um, in scope for it would be pensions, mortgages, savings, and general insurance. So, you know, that for me is when this thing genuinely takes off. When you've got all of that information in one place and built around the consumer um, in a way that works best for the consumer. So I, I think that open banking is a, is a brilliant foundation for building that. And uh, the UK is incredibly well positioned to lead on it. And, you know, frankly, we've got to, we've got to maintain the momentum that we built up in open banking. Uh, otherwise, the Australians who are uh, equally uh, progressed in their open data journey will get ahead of us and, and that just won't do. Why is it bad if the Australians do get ahead of us? What if both countries develop a good uh, open banking platform? Well, I'm joking, to be honest. <laughs> you know, I, I enjoy the rivalry with Australia as, as much as anyone else does. But, you know, we work with them and we we're in regular dialogue with them. We've built our open banking platforms in in very similar ways that the only difference that we've got with Australia really is that Australia has a vision to move not just beyond open finance, but also into the areas of telecoms, energy, even groceries. And the reason that they're on this route, on this journey, is that they believe that the data fundamentally belongs to the consumer and not to the institution, which is what we also believe here in the UK. And if you give um, individuals 
access to that information, then they can use it in, in great ways. That's not just for financial services. That exists for many other sectors as well. And, and here in the UK, the British government's national data strategy, uh, which was only published a month or so ago, talks about that journey and makes a commitment to building out policy in all of those other areas. The onus is on us to get this right within banking and then show how it can be uh, rolled out into other products within financial services and then other sectors within the economy. Uh, and that, that's the route to a digital economy. Imran, you've outlined a number of advantages for the consumer, competition, choice. But can you also just touch on a question that many people will ask? People will have doubts about third parties getting access to their data and using it for nefarious purposes, particularly at the current time where we can all see online fraud on the rise. This is a concern that many will have. How can you assuage those concerns? Uh, do you know what? It's one of the first things I thought about when I entered into the role. We have built security right at the heart of, of open banking. First of all, the way that we've constructed it is that only authorized third parties can participate in the ecosystem. So every single one of those uh, fintechs, they're not always fintechs, but they often are fintechs at this stage in, in the growth of open banking, um, has been authorized by the FCA, is supervised by the FCA and regulated by the FCA. Uh, and if there are any nefarious practices, then that authorization would be removed. Um, and then the moment it's removed, the central infrastructure locks them out of the ecosystem. But we do go beyond that. Um, there no customer would ever need to share their username and password with any entity other than their bank. So from a security point of view, we believe that's the right way to do it. I think it's also important to know for consumers to know that open banking is an opt-in, not an opt-out model. So nothing will happen unless any individuals uh, engage with open banking. And when they do, it happens only with their explicit consent. So they will know precisely what information is being used and for what purpose. And frankly, if they're not happy with it, they can revoke it. Uh, as easy, they can revoke that consent as easily as it was to grant it. So we really are putting the consumer right at the, the heart of all this. And, and we're not being complacent, uh, even to the extent that should anything go wrong, which in the real world, things do go wrong. We've also designed what we call a dispute management system, which means that the customers should seamlessly be uh, looked after in the case that there are any concerns with their money or their data. Trust is absolutely critical uh, to making sure that this uh, becomes of use to the mainstream. Imran, thank you so much for your time today. Do keep up to date by subscribing to our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Spotify and Acast and follow our discussions at thebanker.com slash podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.